Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Psachim, daf Pei Zion, page 87. We conveniently open with a Mishnah. Ha'isha bizman shehi b'vei ba'ala, shachat alea ba'ala v'shachat alea v'ya, tochal mishel ba'ala. So we have a woman who is living in her husband's house, meaning she's married, and this is a case where if her husband shechted a korban pesach on her behalf, and also her father shechted a korban pesach on her behalf, she should eat from the husband's uh, korban pesach, right? Because the presumption is, the given is, the default is that the wife would have been included, would have been intended to be included in her husband's group. But if she went on for the Chag, right, meaning she gets married and then she goes for Yantif, she goes to her, back to her parents, which often happens and apparently often happened even in the time of the Mishnah, then, and so now she's, you know, back home, so to speak, for Yantif and her husband shechs the korban pesach on her behalf, and her father shechs the korban pesach on her behalf. In that case, she can eat in whichever one she wants, meaning whether from her father's korban pesach, with you know her included, or her husband's. Because at that point, I suppose early that early in marriage, when the, she's kind of you know back home and in a in a visitor capacity, but it's not yet streamlined, so to speak. Uh, it's not clear. It's not an obvious thing which group she would have naturally been included to be with. So, of course, before we even go on with the rest of the Mishnah, we can talk here about the defaults, about presumptions about women being included either with their husbands or with their fathers and what happens to the woman who is not married and whose father is not shechting a Korban Pesach because either he, he, I don't know, he could be tummy, he could be not alive. There's so many reasons that we could come up with where this would be a much, much more complicated case than the very neat package that the Mishnah presents. On the other hand, this does tell us what the defaults were. She is most certainly included on the Korban Pesach, but let's not forget that. And uh, let's just recognize that, you know, society then, you know, some of this sounds familiar, this idea of, you know, the newlywed couple going home to her, to her parents for their first yantif. You know, that's the kind of thing that really does happen nowadays. On the other hand, um, our society is, uh, we give, we generally give women more, uh, I don't know what, presumption of independence than this would suggest. Carrying on in the Mishnah, we actually do get some of those more extreme or unusual cases. Unusual is not the right word. Vulnerable cases. Yatom apotropocene. If you have an orphan who's got several guardians, and each one of those guardians would shech the Korban Pesach on the orphan's behalf, meaning each one of them is looking out for the orphan, then that person can eat um, in whichever one he or I guess she would want to be part of. Um, because it's not clear, right? It's not. There's no default. that There's no presumption of where he or she would have ended up. If you have a, a slave who is jointly owned, cannot that person cannot eat from either one, from the Korban Pesach of either one, unless they've stipulated in advance from which Korban Pesach he would partake. Because otherwise it ends up, I guess, it ends up being a, 
a question of, you'll forgive me, of ownership um, in terms of what he's allowed to do. Now we've got a case of a person who's half slave and half free man. This is really complicated. Um, and again, the mission is making reference to a case that, of course, we already know everything there is to know about it, even though we don't yet, right? The idea of um, we have a status here where somebody is owned jointly by two partners, then one of them frees the guy. And now, so he's partly free, but he's still partly owned by the other guy. So that's where you get a status of Chetzio um, Evan and Chetzio Ben Chorin, which is, of course, a complicated and presumably not very common status. Lo Yochal Michel Rabo, he can't eat from his master's um, Korban Pesach. Really, he needs to eat from the from the Korban that would be offered by the person who had already freed him, right? Because the, the presumption here is that a master is, meaning somebody who's owning a slave, is not presuming that his that his slave is going to join in the korban pesach, so that seems to be the default anyway, right? That the I suppose one could include a slave, but it's not a given at all. Okay, so there's our mishnah. We're talking now. You know, we've kind of we've been talking about how who's in the group who's eating the korban pesach. I feel like here the the mishnah is a little bit cleaning up the the loose ends because we've talked about the formation of a group or the registering for the korban beforehand. Here we've got when somebody registers on behalf of somebody else, right, to include them in the korban Pesach. Okay, so now I want to jump. Um, I'm still on Amad Aleph, but I'm jumping down to the end of Amad Aleph. Um, there is really a good deal of, I would say, homiletical, exegetical interpretation, maybe both, of the biblical verses from Shir Hashirim and then from the book of Hosea. And this, of course, comes about because we're talking about this woman and which which korban can she eat from. But basically, when we get to the book of Hosea, um, there seems to be much more, I would say, delving into the real, to the case, I guess, of the story of Hosea. So just a very brief background here. I'll do who's who not on a member of Chazal, but on the Navi Hosea, right? This is, uh, Hosea is the first of the book of the Treasar. The Treasar is the 12. They're called the latter day, the latter prophets, not latter day, the latter prophets. All it really means is that these books were collected into one because they were so small to begin with that there was a concern that they would get lost. For example, Ovadia is in there, say for Ovadia, and it's just one parak long. So if you only have one chapter and if you don't have it included with another 11, then it's much more likely to get lost. So Hosea is the first one. Um, he prophesied at the same time as some other famous prophets, Amos, Micha, Hosea, Yeshayahu, and am I missing one? I feel like I'm missing one. Okay, in any case, um, the, and, uh, oh, look at that. Here it is on our daf. Four prophets prophesied at the same time, and the oldest one was Hosea, and these are, those are the four that I've just said. So I, I guess I'm not missing one. Thanks for thankfully for that. And um, in this context, they each actually had their own role in terms of who they pro- whom they prophesied to. For example, Amos prophesied to be Israel, Micha to be Yehuda, Yeshayahu to the king, and you know Hosea. Well, Hosea's story, I think, is really perhaps the most pronounced as an as an unusual and rather difficult story in terms of how it opens up, um, because it. The, the book of Hosea opens 
with Hoshea taking up with a prostitute, whom he then marries, whom he then has children with. And if you think that this is far afield from the Mishnah, you are right. But it's, you know, there's a very long discussion here of the book of Hoshea, and it takes it seriously. It takes the text seriously. It does not take, as Yodana pointed out when we were preparing, you said um, this. it doesn't take it allegorically, right? This is, uh, it's treated quite, um, this is, you know, history, so to speak, from as far as we know of Hoshea's reality. Um, and and we have, you know, both, basically we have the narrative of his life um, with some poetry thrown in for good measure. And then we have a um, repentance on the part of Hosea. And I think that that is the part that really, uh, it takes, you know, it takes almost the whole, well, it's a very long dash, but it, it takes a good chunk of text to get to the part of Hosea uh, reaching this point of realizing that he had sinned and that he had reason to do tshuva and to request to ask for God's compassion. So it says as follows, once he knew that he had sinned, he stands up to ask for mercy for himself. You're standing up to ask for mercy for yourself. Ask for mercy for all of, for B'nai Israel, for the Jewish people. Because I decreed three decrees against them because of your wrongdoing. So this is really, you know, a pretty extreme uh, drama, I would say, right? Between God, Ben Israel, and Hosea, as on the one hand, the Navi, the prophet who's bringing God's message to the people, but also God's message to the people is uh, tailored, I suppose, because of who this messenger ends up being. Ahmad. Hoshea stands up. He stood up. He requested compassion for the Bnei Israel, and in fact, the decree was was nullified. And instead, God begins to bless Bnei Israel. Let the number of the children of the number of Bnei Israel, the number of the children of Israel, be like the sand of the sea. Lo ami atem yeyamer lahem b'nei el chai b'nikbetsu b'nei Yehuda u'v'nei Yisrael yachtav. So that each one of them will say, instead of saying, it says, you're not my people, instead it will be said, instead of saying that they are God's people, it says, you are the children of a living God, the children of Yehuda, and Yisrael shall be gathered together. Now, in an era when we're talking about, this is why the historical era of the four prophets matters, this is the time when the when the tribes of Bnei Israel are split, such that the ten tribes go missing, meaning they don't go missing; they're exiled in as punishment. And the prophecy here of them being gathered together, that the that Yehuda and Israel will be rejoined, is a beautiful testimony to again the Rachamim of Hashem, the mercy of God that He's bringing them back together after the after the. Um, punishment of separation. Uh, we to this day do not have the ten tribes rejoin. So, and every so often you find we hear about Bnei Menashe. We do hear about uh, lost tribes being found, perhaps the Ethiopians and so on. Um, and then the Gemara here continues: It says, "I will sow her." 
to me in the land and I will have compassion upon her that has not received compassion. And I will say to them that we're not my people, you are my people. This is a verse from Hosea that is woven into this statement in the Gemara very beautifully to be, again, the prophecy to Hosea about B'nai Israel and the presumed, you know, upcoming, uh, upcoming, I don't know exactly when, uh, redemption. Of course, if we were delving into the book of Hosea, we would spend a lot more time thinking about the different possible, possible applications of each of these prophecies. Really, I just find it uh, valuable and, of course, a little bit gripping that the words of the prophet, so, you know, always the Gemara uses psukim to make its point, to illustrate a point, to hang a piece of halacha, things like that. Here, and I think in a rather unusual way, the Gemara really goes through the narrative of the Navi and the prophecy of the Navi and the identity of the Navi in a way that removes it from its own historical context and puts it, you know, smack with Chazal as a living prophecy. Right. And I think part of it also is, is that, you know, the whole concept at the end of the three children sort of being the three decrees and then those decrees get reversed. In a way, I think this prophecy is comforting to Chazal, right? Here they are living in Galut. You know, they're in Babel. They are also talking about the Korban Pesach and not having the ability to bring the Korban Pesach, which really was sort of the most important, let's say, social interaction of explaining that you were really part of the Jewish people, right? That's really what that Mishnah is talking about, down to the detail of the married woman, the Eved, everyone who had to bring this Korban. And so it really seems fitting to me that Galut is actually the theme of this page because I almost feel like in a way it's commenting on what it is that we've actually lost. And yet Chazal, I think in a way are comforting themselves because they're going to sort of list all the things of Rachamim that God did with their particular Galut, one being with Hosea, that that God actually reversed those decrees of Hosea, and then going on to the piece of Babel, which I'm going to go through in a little bit more detail about why being in Babel was actually a sign of God's rachamim and that there wasn't galut to a different place. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to take it from there. Um, so we have this very interesting, um, just a couple things here where sort of in a way what they're trying to say is almost like give in, in a comforting way, you know, explain like uh, how God made the galut well or okay for them, or did something kind in the Galut. And I think the big question with the Galut that they have to deal with, which gets answered on this stuff is, okay, we all know that the first Beit Hamidrash was destroyed by the Babylonians, and they ended up in Babel for 70 years. But what's interesting and sort of bizarre about the second Galut is, here you have sort of this prolonged, you know, it did last for quite a while, this antagonistic relationship with Rome, and Rome eventually destroys the second Beit Hamidrash, but we don't get exiled to Rome. In fact, the big place where we end up ends up being Bavel again. And I think from a historical context, it's kind of unusual when you think about it that way. And a little bit, I think this staff is trying to deal with that. Like, how is it? Why is it? We need to put some meaning in why Bavel and not Rome or not Egypt or not somewhere else. Why do we end up in Bavel, especially when there was an original Galut there? Um, so the first piece, which isn't directly... Uh, related to Babel, which I just thought was nice. It's this piece of Rabbi Yoshia, right, who talks about uh, this particular pasuk, which appears in Shoftim, right, that says, Sitkata parzunu b'Yisrael, um, right, that this idea that righteous acts of his rulers in Israel, and 
that the idea here is that you know she right that God actually scattered us amongst all of the nations and then you know they have this interesting discussion between uh, uh, Amin and Rabbi Hanina you know basically explaining that basically by putting us everywhere we could never be fully destroyed um, and that there was really um, uh, there was thought into this that if God had put us all into one place, then the Jews could have been much easier destroyed. So I thought that was actually a very beautiful piece um, of the uh, of the Gemara here. Um, but then I'm going to skip down just a little bit. It said, "Tani Rabbi Chia, my dichtiv Elokin Hevin Dracha v'hu Yada et Mekoma." Right. So we have this pasuk here from Eo that says, "God understands its ways and knows its place." Yodeh Gadosh Baruch Hu et Yisrael sheinan yocholin lekabel gezerot shel Romayim. So it's that God understood that we would not have been able to live under the Romans, that the Romans were so particularly harsh and their decrees and their treatment of us were so harsh, we could not have thrived there. We couldn't have even lived there. And so therefore, out of Rachamim, God sends us actually to Babel. But Amar Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi, and sorry, Rabbi Eliezer says, Lo Right? So that he sent us to Babel, right? And because it's called Sheol. So Sheol is this word of like the Netherland. But what it's really commenting on is geographically, Babel is actually much lower than the surrounding land. So it's sort of like actually paying attention to the geography, the topography that's actually there, right? And here they're going to quote a Pasuk, which brings us back to Hosea, interestingly, Paragut Gimel Pasuk Right, that says, Miyad Shaul Abdam, Egalam, right? That it says, I will ransom them from the power of uh, Shaul and I will redeem them from death. Rabbi Hanina gives a different reason, which is that the our Lashon, the Lashon of the Torah, Hebrew, is very similar to Lashon of Babel, which is Aramaic. So, in a way, it's also saying we couldn't have assimilated as much because we were able to maintain our own language. And finally, we have Rabbi Yochanan, who says, Rabbi Yochanan Mamar, Mipinesha Shigran, Levet Aman, Mishel Adam, Shekaas, Alisho, Lehechan, Mishagara, Levet Ima. Right? So it's saying that Hashem sent us to their mother's house. And so here, what this is noting is, is that, right, we traditionally say that Abraham was from Ur Kazdim, right? That he was from, originates from around the area of Babel. Um, and so it's like a man who's angry at his wife. And where does he send her? He sends her back to her mother's house. And again, it's not lost on me that this sort of appears here with this whole Mishnah, which is a discussion about, you know, a woman who just gets married. Um, and there it really talks about her in the context of her father's house and wanting to go back to her father's house. And the, the Gemara gets into a discussion about that, about a woman who wants to be at her father's house if she's not in a good marriage, but doesn't want to be in a father's house. Here we're talking about it in terms of the mother's house, but the idea that somebody, you know, God sent us back to our birthplace, that there should be some comfort um, in Babel again. And, uh, you know, that, that we return there because that's really where Abraham was from. So I read this whole page as Chazal comforting itself and really sort of trying to find what good could we find in Babel? What good could we find in the Galut? And the fact that God has us land in Babel and not elsewhere in the world. I actually thought that was a really um, 
like once you pay attention, I feel like this stuff kind of folds in on itself in terms of from the Mishnah to the to the prostitute whom Hosea marries to the allusion allusion of of Bavel being you know of the Bnei Israel and Bavel being seeking to go back home. I I thought it really worked very beautifully once you look at it all all together. And that's one of those times where we could say, look, the daf yomi, the pace of the daf is an advantage because we get to see it, you know, hanging together as opposed to if we'd gone through it very, very slowly. And I think it, I might have lost right. some and of I, this. There, There's something very literary about this particular daf. You know, sometimes we're like, the Gemara takes a tangent here. Nothing feels accidental here. I can tie everything together that's on this staff. The halachic themes, the agadic themes, they all seem to fit very nicely. Yes, exactly. And the language here, I mean, you know, the language is in Hebrew and Aramaic and, and it's distant in that way, but I would say that to the extent that I can process the loveliness of the language, I think it's really here. The interplay of the psukim and the and the literary allusion to the, again, to the uh, metaphorical speech, you know, and and then it ties into the to the Mishnah, which is just very basic uh, halacha as an overview to all of this. Right, but Chazal really elevated in a beautiful way here. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink us, review us on all major podcasts. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page and some of the connections that's made by Chazal. Thank you to Ravani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron uh, website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.